electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's Essential Morning Show. He's here too. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, Boeing's president and CEO is confident that the 737 MAX is safer than the safest airplane flying today. A spokesman for pilots and a pilot himself is a little slower to come around. We like what we're seeing so far, but I think his exuberance over that is a little premature. Tesla's stock is soaring, and CNBC's Phil LeBeau has a theory on why. If you believe that we are at an inflection point in terms of electric vehicles taking off, aside from Tesla, who would you play? And spare me the talk about the competition is coming, because it's not there. And the man behind eight of the ten biggest corporate deals in 2019 makes a projection for mergers and acquisitions in the year ahead. If you're a CEO right now, a lot of the things you've been doing the last couple of years, that's kind of played out. Those stories, plus how the world's CEOs are responding to the coronavirus outbreak. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. It's Thursday, January 30th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, kill please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Mike Santoli. Joe is out today, sick, as he has been the last several days. We hope he's feeling better. First up on today's podcast, a roundup of what global CEOs are telling CNBC about the coronavirus outbreak. Kevin Johnson, CEO of Starbucks. We're now managing a very dynamic situation in China related to the coronavirus. Lisa Su, CEO of AMD, which is a U.S. chipmaker with a big business partnership in China. The company produces microprocessors, including the ones in the Sony and Microsoft game consoles you probably have in your living room. You know, from our standpoint, um, you know, we're taking um, you know, precautions in our facilities in China to make sure that that is um, you know, well, uh, well protected. Jim Fitterling, the CEO of chemical giant Dow. We've seen some demand pull from coronavirus on things like cleaning materials for disinfectants, uh, like you would use in household cleaners, uh, non-wovens for masks and wipes and those kinds of things. Amazon, also on edge, the company announced that it's restricting employee travel to and from China until further notice. And David Solomon, CEO of Goldman Sachs, was on CNBC this week and voiced his own concerns. We're very focused on it because we have we have a couple of thousand people, you know, right there in the region. And we're obviously very concerned about those people, about their families, etc. I think it's too early to say, you know, where this will go. We obviously have a lot of people working from home um, and are, you know, restricting travel uh, like many companies. But we're watching very, very closely and are obviously concerned for our people and doing everything we can to help and protect. After the Federal Reserve's two-day policy meeting this week, Chairman Jay Powell held a news conference during which he addressed the impact of the virus on the global economy. Uncertainties about the outlook remain, including those posed by the new coronavirus. 
coronavirus. It's a very serious issue. There is likely to be some disruption to activity in China and possibly globally based on the spread of the virus to date and the travel restrictions and business closures that have already been imposed. Um, of course, the situation is is really in its early stages, and it's very uncertain about how far it will spread and what the macroeconomic effects will be in China. The team asked Dan Suzuki, deputy CIO at Richard Bernstein Advisors, about the pressure these concerns are putting on the markets. Dan, you don't have any concerns about the buy right now on China? I mean, just not knowing what we don't know in terms of this buy. Not even knowing the price, because the market's been closed. (laughs) Right, and and will continue to be closed for a while. Uh, Yeah, well, I think that obviously there's a a level of uncertainty when it comes to something like this, and no one knows, and I don't claim to be an immunologist or epidemiologist, um, which is why, you know, we're not trading on these things. But, But even not knowing what's going to happen with the infection at this point, just looking at the massive lockdown of people, the massive shutdown of factories, of workplaces, of anything else that happens there. China's trying to do their best to contain this. Those, con- those containment of, um, measures are going to be very expensive in the short term. Oh. Somebody pointed out before, we've never seen a lockdown of human life in, in, on this scale. Yeah, absolutely. So in the near term, that's going to weigh on, 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 global G- uh, on China and global GDP. It's going to weigh on trade. It's going to weigh on profit. So I think that's going to be a big negative. you be a buyer the day it opens? Or you wait and see. Well, listen, we're, we're, we're actually owning uh, China through the ET- A lot of our, our positions are through the ETF. So the, the ETFs are trading here in the U.S. So you, you've seen it show up in the ETFs. They've been down. And, and, and I think that that's a normal reaction to be expected. But the question is, you know, when you get that leg down, is that a should you buy or should you sell that dip? And I think I, I be, tend to be more of a buyer, given that, you know, everybody's focused on this without actually knowing the outcome. And so a lot of that negativity is priced in. And again, name me name a, a, a widespread virus. I mean, everybody looks at the SARS example. Look at look at all these historical examples when, you know, that hasn't been a buying opportunity for someone with a bit of a longer time horizon. Yeah. Well, you sometimes after a pullback, but uh, a, a sure, little deeper sure. one. But we'll see how that goes. Dan, thank Thank you. Thank you. The Transportation Department will reportedly make some potentially dramatic claims regarding Southwest Airlines. According to the Wall Street Journal, you've got to go read this story this morning. A report out uh, in the coming days will say that more than 17 million passengers flew on Southwest jets with unconfirmed maintenance records. The Wall Street Journal says it will also say that both wingtips of a jet were smashed when a flight tried to land in gale force winds. The Wall Street Journal says the report is critical of the FAA's oversight of Southwest, calling it lax, ineffective, and inconsistent. And I know for many road warriors out there and investors out there who think about these things, uh, it's a scary story. A Southwest spokeswoman said that the company reviewed the draft on Tuesday and strongly disagrees with what they're calling unsubstantiated references to Southwest safety culture. But it, it's obviously a question, that, uh, an issue that yes. will get some more picture. And also just tells you that the, the oversight of just general safety approaches of all these airlines is now under more scrutiny. Exactly. Right? After Boeing. Speaking of Boeing, yesterday on the podcast, we brought you an interview with that company's CEO and president, Dave Calhoun. In its fourth quarter report, Boeing revealed its first annual loss since 1997. That's over two decades. And this is, of course, in the wake of the 737 MAX crashes that have captured attention of travelers and of investors. But even as costs from those crashes rise, Dave Calhoun reiterated in his conversation with us confidence in the MAX aircraft and its return to service. We believe this airplane is safer than the safest airplane flying today. 
Every next airplane has to be that way. It has to be that way for Boeing. It has to be that way for our competitors. Um, so uh, what we call it, trying to relabel it, trying to merchandise that, no. Uh, this plane will recover with a flying public when airplane pilots step on it, fly it, like it. And by the way, based on all the test flights we've had to date, which are, which are many, they do. So as, as all those pilots return, so will passengers. One of those pilots, Dennis Tazer. He's the spokesman for the Allied Pilots Association, which represents 15,000 professional pilots who fly for American Airlines. But maybe more relevant, he's piloted 737s for over a decade. Here's Andrew, who asked Tager about Calhoun's confidence in the 737. Is this plane safer than any other plane that's in the sky? No, well, we don't, we don't make an incremental measure on, on whether an airplane is safer than another. Um, no matter the manufacturer of the aircraft uh, model, it's either safe or it isn't. And that means the airplane is either going to go or it isn't. So um, I do understand and, and appreciate the comments of Mr. Calhoun about the dependency on pilots. Uh, we're the last line of defense for our, our passengers, and we take that seriously. Um, so uh, we're going to go from there. But I do want to mention, he, he had said that the pilots have experienced this aircraft, and do they like it? Yeah, they do. Well, um, we're going to reserve that comment. Um, we like what we're seeing so far, but I think his exuberance over that is a little premature. Um, when we get all the information, the TAB information, the 1302, um, the JOAB, which is happening as we speak going forward, then we'll render our decision. That's how we operate in a Dennis, when do you, you know, when do you think you'll be able to come on our air and give us a real assessment then of the of this plane and how and how your your pilots are feeling about it? Oh, when we see it, we've seen the training modules for the simulator, the initial uh, areas uh, that Boeing wants to cover, and right. uh, we appreciate them coming in quick. But uh, we have a lot of questions about that as well. I want to make sure that it's it's just not a drive-by simulator session that it's full and robust. Uh, we got to run, but Becky did push Dave Calhoun very well yesterday on this issue of automation, and you just mentioned it. You know, 20 years from now, do you think that there's going to be pilots in the plane? Two, three, just one? What, what do you think really happens? Well, the, the, the talk about automation, Becky was right. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of clarity on that, but the bottom line is automation is an additive to the safety margin, is not a replacement for pilot experience and training. And I um, uh, was very concerned when Mr. Calhoun brought up inexperienced pilots when talking about the MCAS system. Me too. Um, that, is, that is not something that, that we're going to accept. That MCAS was poorly designed, and it was the automation system that contributed to these crashes. Right. It, the was the pilots, it was the pilots not turning off the automation right. that was the problem. But it was the automation that began the problem. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Dennis, thank you for being with us this morning. Always good to see you and uh, hope to see you again very soon. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, Tesla reported its fourth quarter financials this week, sending the stock up even further and giving investors and Elon a reason to dance. Tesla analyst Craig Irwin on what's behind the excitement. What we have is fervent enthusiasm for the stock and the fear of missing out. That's really what's driving things. We're back in a moment. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod with Becky Quick, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Mike Santoli. Here's Andrew. Is it the gift that keeps on giving? I don't know what it is. It gives but, and it takes. That's uh, for sure. it, it gives and it takes. Right now it's giving. It's Tesla. Tesla delivering a record number of vehicles in the fourth quarter, and it expects to deliver a lot more. And it's sending the stock to new highs, extending its wild ride this month with a gain of, are you ready for this, guys? More than 50%. The gain is... This um, month. It's just this month. <laughs> this month alone. Uh, the gains that make it more likely that Elon Musk unlocks that first stage of his moonshot pay package and earns hundreds of millions for keeping Tesla's market cap above $100 billion. It may be a reason to dance. I want to get to Phil LeBeau, who's in Chicago this morning, with the latest on all of it. Phil. Hey, Andrew. Uh, Tesla had a what many would call very good earnings for the fourth quarter, far better than were expected. But it's the guidance for 2020 and the number of vehicles it expects to deliver. That really juiced the shares after hours. It beat on the top and the bottom line. By the way, it beat by a fairly handy, uh, handy margin. You've got free cash flow of $910 million, basically double what most analysts were expecting. 2020 deliveries up at least 39% because they are saying they're going to top 500000 in vehicle deliveries in 2020. For a point of reference, the company delivered just over 360,000 vehicles last year. Most analysts had them in the range of 465,000 to 475,000 in terms of how many vehicles they expected to deliver. But again, Tesla says it will deliver at least a half million of those. And then the big point that they made on the conference call last night, Elon Musk saying they are seeing extremely strong demand, early demand for the Model Y. We're not too worried about demand. We're worried about production. You know, it's, it's make sure we get that production ramp going and, and reach volume production as soon as possible with the Model Y. By the way, the Tesla Model Y goes on sale later this year. They're already beginning the production ramp out at the Fremont, California plant. They will begin next year uh, with production in California or in China at the Shanghai plant. And if you, as you guys look out into the future, and I know you're going to be talking with some analysts today. You've got Berlin, which is going to be their next gigafactory. They expect that to be up and running by the end of 2021. So you've got a company here that is expanding rapidly. Elon Musk made a point, guys, in the conference call to say repeatedly, their big concern right now, getting the battery supply so they can meet the demand that they expect, not only for the Model Y, but obviously for the Model 3 as they ramp up production in China. All right, Phil, uh, thanks for sticking around for more on Tesla's earnings. Let's bring in Craig Irwin. He is Senior Research Analyst at Roth Capital. He has a sell rating and a brand-new price target on the stock of $350. Craig, good morning. Good to see you. Good morning. So four months ago, at the start of the quarter that was just reported for Tesla, the stock was at $240. We're going to open today at $640. Seems to me you can say they had a good quarter, better than expected, good guidance, and still yeah, say, exactly. why are we trading at 640? And they came in close to the bottom of the range for the guide for, uh, for 2019, right? So what we have is fervent enthusiasm for the stock and the fear of missing out. That's really what's driving but is this. But it, is it retail investors that are driving this, or, or is it the institutions? This uh, comment from Elon Musk who effectively said, yeah. hey, is the, retail, the retail investor is smarter than the institutional investor right now. I do think that a lot of the retail investors actually have uh, deeper and more accurate insights than um, many of the, the, the big institutional investors and, uh, and, and certainly better insights than many of the analysts. 
So right now, some of the, uh, some of the very large uh, hedge funds are, are playing this as a momentum play. Um, they're obviously using um, their knowledge of, of mechanics and, and their ability to get a little bit of an edge there uh-huh. to, um, to trade it for momentum. So right. they're watching very carefully. So just to add to what Phil said, I think one of the key things that made the stock um, behave really well after market was the pull forward of the Model Y. Um, the Model Y was originally expected to be in production at the end um, of 2020. Then last year they started talking about it summertime. Now we have production in January. So, you know, that provides pretty good visibility for, for higher units this year. That's why we cranked our target. That's why we cranked our estimates. Why a 50% run? What's happening? Is that the shorts getting washed out? Is it somebody else stepping in? Is it a brand new look at what's happened? What, like, how do you make sense of it? So first off, it was um, China, right? So last summer we upgraded the stock for China, sadly downgraded <laughs> later. Yeah. But... Um, there's some really, really bullish sentiment out there as far as the China facility. People know that, you know, the key marquee European brands make all their money in China. Um, and, you know, the volume of luxury vehicle sales in China is fantastic. There are more millionaires on, on a dollar basis in China than there are in the U.S. So the market could actually end up being really fantastic. But the reality is, you know, the EV market in China is, is a very, very different character than what we have in the U.S. I, we have... You know, the, the, you know they're, they're valid cars for that market, but people are, people are taking pieces of that, you know, extrapolating America to China, and I don't think that really works. So that was the first part of the big run. Then from there, there's just been a lot of pylon. And, you know, you look at their list of their portfolio projects right now. they got the new Roadster. they got Shanghai. they got the truck, um, the semi. I mean, Model Y, what am I missing? I mean, yeah. they, they have a tremendous portfolio. And, uh, you know, people are getting excited about, you know, multiple things or everything in that portfolio to, uh, to be running it up here. Hey, Becky. Hey, Becky, Phil. Becky, yeah, Becky, I'm going to inter- interject here. I, I, I'll tell you one reason why I think the stock keeps moving higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what Craig talked about, this fear of missing out. If you believe that we are at an inflection point in terms of electric vehicles taking off, who would you play right now? Aside from Tesla, who would you play? And spare me the talk about the competition is coming because it's not there. It just is not there. It may be there at some point, but Tesla right now dominates this market. It has become Kleenex to the electric vehicle market. And if you believe that we are at an inflection point, you want to be in Tesla. That's a big reason why so many people have moved into this stock right now. That's a good point, Phil. But what it also could mean is that there's all the enthusiasm for the entire industry is running through one stock. Kind of like all you're, the enthusiasm right for that. plant-based meat is going through Beyond Meat, even though it's one small company. That's you're you're 100% right about that. So, there, I mean, there, there are other ways to play, play the EV market right now. A lot of them tend to be small cap, but Cree is a very good mid-cap to play um, electric vehicles. Cree is the material supplier to everybody making silicon carbide MOSFETs. Silicon carbide MOSFETs allow to use a smaller battery, have a better range, more efficient vehicle. Tesla's their, their, their primary customer in EVs now, but everybody's going to be using um, silicon carbide MOSFETs. Either they're going to be using material from Cree or one of the secondary competitors, um, or they could use MOSFETs directly uh, from Cree. All right, secondary plays, but not as much maybe of the, the fan appeal uh, as Tesla and Elon Musk. Uh, Craig, Phil, thanks very much. Next on Squawk Pod, the global head of mergers and acquisitions for Morgan Stanley on deal-making in 2020. Why are, do I think there are going to be fewer deals? I actually think a lot of it's regulatory. We'll be right back. When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own... trip to Texas. 
Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. Track Alpha. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Up track. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Mike Santoli, who's hanging out with us in for Joe Kernan today. So deal making worldwide hit nearly four trillion dollars in 2019. That's the good news. And it's according to Refinitiv. But so far this year, it has been crickets like nothing out there being very quiet. Uh, we've yet to hear about any real major deals uh, that have driven this excitement on Wall Street. And joining us right now to talk about what is actually happening here and whether it's all going to pick up, what's going on behind the scenes, is the one and only Robert Kindler, vice chairman, global head of M&A at Morgan Stanley, resident comedian. Morgan Stanley was the lead advisor on several of uh, last year's biggest deals, including Bristol-Myers Squibb's acquisition of Celgene, United Tech's merger with Raytheon, and so many others. So what gives? Well, it's good to be here. So good, to, it's good to see you. Uh, yeah, t- 2019 was a very good year uh, by historical standards, absolutely. Uh, you also have to remember that, that when we were sitting here last year, we were in the middle of a government shutdown. Right. We had just come off of uh, December, which was a big market break, and there was a lot of volatility. Yep. So it was actually pretty much of a miracle that it ended up being as good as it was, just given all the volatility and uncertainty. Uh, I actually think that this year we're not going to see a lot of large deals. Uh, I think there'll be plenty of activity because M&A, you, you really need to do M&A. And I'm, I'm sure you all saw in the, uh, in the conference in Davos that CEO confidence is high right. and, you know, and all of that. But, and that's when you know, people usually do deals. Right. And, usually and, the worst time. They're, too, they're overconfident, right? <laughs> well, I, I, it's certainly the case that there are times when deals are done uh, for the wrong reasons and have overconfidence. No question about it. But, but if you're a CEO right now, and you're looking at what your trajectory is, a lot of the things you've been doing the last couple of years, like increasing margins by cost-cutting, that's kind of played out. And, and even stock repurchases, investors really would rather you be investing for growth rather than just returning you know, money. So, so I, I think it's an important tool. So why, why are, do I think there are going to be fewer deals? I actually think a lot of it's regulatory. I think that the scrutiny that large deals gets is just something that CEOs, I'm talking about $20 billion right. you know, dollar plus deals. You know, in, in fact, for the, for the large tech companies, they're probably shut out of doing anything. Well, I was thinking they'd even do small deals. But, yeah. you know, I used to think they would have a, they'd struggle to do small deals. But then you saw Facebook, for example, bought a company called um, uh, Control, Control Labs. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know, but it's about a half a billion, billion dollar transaction. It, one of these, these things that go on your wrist that it's going to be able to control your mind. It's, it was a shock, <laughs> no, but a, a shocking technology. Wow. 
and closed yeah. almost like within a couple of weeks. Nobody said, nobody said well, peep. Well, that's the thing. It's small deals. Now, if you look at the large companies. But I would have thought you know, that even a big company going after a small company I think it's going to be with a unique technology, people would say, mm, I don't know, do we want that to happen or not? No, I think it's an issue. You know, right. For companies like Microsoft, who's obviously doing just fine, but they have done large acquisitions like LinkedIn and right. other things. Obviously, they're doing great with that acquisitions. But it's going to be a little bit harder, uh, I think, for those kind of companies to do deals. Now, obviously, Apple hasn't done many deals. Amazon hasn't done many deals. But Facebook and Microsoft have. So you you don't think there's a dynamic where it says, well, look, we at least know what the regulatory terrain is right now, what the political backdrop is. Let's try to get something in before the election. Maybe there's going to be something new coming. You know, I actually would have thought that. But we've ended up with a very populist administration now. And, and, and it's also very unpredictable now. Yeah. So deals are being blocked under CFIUS. You know, they'll basically say, I don't care that you are a donut company. You have a warehouse within a mile of a military installation. We're going to look at that. Right. And that makes, you know, Chinese deals very hard to do. Is so it I actually security don't concerns so. that, r- that rise uh, more large? Or is it, um, I don't know, the whim of whatever regulator or administrators there? Is it... Um, Populism? Which, which of these things it's, is it, It's all of those things, but I think it's populism. Yeah. And it's very unpredictable. You, know, you end up having uh, the administration challenge the Time Warner AT&T deal, which is a vertical merger, and not challenge right. Disney Fox, which is horizontal. And in fact, they just came out with vertical uh, merger guidelines. So I actually think that, that while I would have, you know, Mike, I would have predicted that, in fact, people don't think uh, it matters who gets elected because they think that this president is is unpredictable in certain ways, but very populist. Um, we just had Craig Moffat on the program, and he made a provocative prediction, if you will. He said, look, AT&T over the next, well, he, I think his, his time period was three to five years, so I don't know if it comes mm-hmm. sooner or not, will ultimately decide that the Time Warner transaction was not the right decision and would divest that. Mm-hmm. He even made an even more provocative idea, which he said maybe they try to merge that with NBC Universal, which is owned by Comcast, mm-hmm. and the Comcast would ultimately spin this business off as part of some kind of larger transaction. What do you think is going on, especially given what's happening in media? And that's been your well, your, yeah, your, you know, the media your, your original. <laughs> uh, that's, where, that's where you started your career. Yeah, I do. you know, it, it's interesting. We go through these waves, right? So, Time Warner spun off Time Warner Cable, right? Because of course, it makes no sense to have content together with distribution. And the very next year, Comcast bought Universal, right? Because, of course, you need to have... And what it really is the case is that uh, the Comcast-Universal deal made sense because they're both good businesses and they're run very well. Right. There's no synergies between AT&T and, and Time Warner. It just was a better cash flow-generated business to support the dividend. I, I think that's entirely possible. And, and by the way, in, in, um, in, no one ever looks back at media deals, but... There's been a lot of difficult media deals. Look at Sinclair with right. RSN and right. look at uh, Discovery with Scripps and Meredith with Time Warner. I mean, the list, and obviously AT&T with DirecTV, right. the, list, the list is quite long. Okay. Yeah. Rob, it's great to see you. Come on back. We'll have a longer conversation. Terrific. Thank nice you. seeing you guys. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. On our rundown tomorrow, a special Super Bowl pod. Sports betting, sports merchandise, and an interview with the CEO of Anheuser-Busch. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. 
to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.